Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Top 10 Historical Movies That Should Be Made. The date, June 2021. My name is Bell Avis. Since the advent of the big summer movie, with the premiere of Jaws in the mid-1970s, and followed by Star Wars in 1977, the blockbuster has been a staple of Hollywood. But there are always many other genres. Horror movies, romantic comedies, and indies continue to get made, though often more in the streaming services than for theatrical release. For purposes of this podcast, though, I'm going to lump Netflix, Amazon, and like along with the traditional studios such as Disney and Warner Brothers. In the case of the latter, or the corporate parents, the lines have begun to blur. Today, the most commonly watched movies are still the blockbusters with superhero movies as the primary vehicle of the type. But we also have the live-action-adventure heist film, as noted by The Fast and the Furious, or the Mission Impossible franchises, and the usual alien and zombie fare. The indies now dominate the Oscars, however. Once Titanic or Lord of the Rings Return of the King would win the best picture, today it is seldom seen fare such as Parasite or Nomad Land. The latter is about a movie who loses her husband to cancer, and then, due to her destitution, the protagonist is forced to defecate into a bucket. Oh boy, where can I go to spend my $9 for a ticket and another $20 on candy and popcorn? And yet, the most popular TV series of our age is Game of Thrones. Time Magazine in 2017 noted this about the show. Quote, Thrones, a scrappy upstart launched by two TV novices in 2011, will finish its run as the biggest and most popular show in the world. An average of more than 23 million Americans watched each episode last season when platforms like streaming and video on demand are accounted for. And since it's the most pirated show ever, millions more watch it in ways unaccounted for. Thrones, which holds the record for the most Emmys ever won by a primetime series, airs in more than 170 countries. It's the farthest reaching show out there, not to mention the most obsessed about. Sure, there are zombies, dragons, red sorceresses, and a resurrection, though in this case the resurrected character was not exactly Christ-like having gotten it on with a wilding in a cave, but at least at its core, It is history of a kind. Writer George R. R. Martin, in several different interviews, cites an impressive array of historical figures who inspired his fictional characters. The names of the two leading houses are Stark and Lannister. Don't they bear an uncanny resemblance to the 15th century War of the Roses York and Lancaster names? And even the fictional map of Westeros looks a whole lot like Britain, including a wall up in the north to keep the savages in line. The thing, though, that made Game of Thrones was a movie-type budget. The castles felt real, not just a facade. The armies and navies had weight, and it showed what it looked like when actually hundreds of ships or thousands of men went into combat. I would argue only Lord of the Rings and Patton felt as accurate. One of the problems with a host of the Game of Thrones knockoffs was that they did not commit the money. In one case, Showtime's Camelot, Arthur addressed his people 
It felt like there were about 25 people in that entire audience. But in the Battle of Hardhome and Thrones, it feels like there are thousands of combatants, even if half of the combatants are the undead. There are certain things that only movie production and the corresponding money can handle. Only things that a big production can produce. Now, I wish the recent release of Midway had been better. The acting was clunky, the dialogue is terrible, but when the Japanese aircraft carriers were destroyed, it felt real, like you were there in the American planes. And only Hollywood, with the power, the creativity, and of course the money, of the studios and those streaming services can replicate such historical events. You can't do a TV movie on Midway, but a big budget Hollywood blockbuster can. It would be great to be czar for the day and see a certain number of historical events come to life, which is the point of this podcast. Where should Hollywood lend that power, that creativity, that production, and that money to real historical events? Now, I'm not trotting on new ground here. In a 2019 article in Grunge, several intriguing ideas are offered. One of them featured a slave who had escaped from George Washington and another on the fake publication of Hitler's diaries back in 1993. But these are situations that could be evoked on relatively easy budgets. Again, TV money. I am looking for epic, blockbuster, Game of Thrones type productions. I am looking for epic type Cecil B. DeMille type productions back in the age of Hollywood or Cleopatra or even what we saw recently in Midway or 1917 or Dunkirk. More to that vein are suggestions that include biopics of the Marquis de Lafayette or Pele. These are again from that grunge article. But the one that intrigued me enough to add to my list was one that Grunge suggested. It was called Revolution, The Life of Toussaint, Les Ouvertures. I will be writing in an upcoming podcast about woke Hollywood's dilemma, but I do not think I am selecting a number of these movies featuring women, Africans, and Asians because I'm trying to appeal to all audiences or because my podcast has gone woke in some ways. Rather, I am choosing these movies because with Hollywood production values, I think they would be super cool. I am also adding in some cast recommendations. And again, when I suggest an actor or actresses be native to the role, I'm not trying to appeal to a woke sentiment. Instead, I find it jarring and frankly historically inaccurate when an unsuitable actor is cast. I still struggle with Christian Bale as Moses in Exodus and even more with Joel Edgerton as Ramses II. But I also do not uh, have any issue with Ben Kingsley's Gandhi because he so nailed the role. Now, would I, in 2021, look to an Indian actor for this role? The difference is in the last 40 years, the rise of the Indian film industry is so evident that I would be surprised if one could not find a suitable portrayer. Plus, in 1980, with Sir Richard Attenborough at the helm, it was probably more problematic. He had a great British actor at his hand, and he gave him the role. And finally, there's the challenge of subtitles. In fairness, I actually watch several British movies in subtitles because then I can catch all of the dialogue. Think I am jingoistic? If you are from L.A. or Louisiana, tell me. Tell me you catch every word said in Shaun of the Dead or the incomparable Hot Fuzz. If you haven't seen that movie, go and watch it. It's awesome. But for so many of these movies that I'm recommending, the issue is the language itself. First on my list is Queen Hatshepsut. 
It would be not an easy thing in the extreme to craft dialogue that dates back 3,500 years. She was actually part of the 18th dynasty of the New Kingdom. Second, even if one were to cast an Egyptian for the role, that person would have more than likely been raised on Arabic today, a language the court of Egypt in 1450 BCE would not have spoken. So, as a default, Mother English would be the language of most of these epics. And the first one, as uh, mentioned already, Queen of Egypt. In Karakuni's The Woman Who Would Be King, Heshepsut's rise to power in ancient Egypt, the author describes the Queen of Egypt, who stylized herself, in fact, as a king. Hatshepsut, the daughter of a general who had usurped the throne of Egypt, was born into a privileged position within the royal household. Mary off to her brother, Again, think Game of Thrones, lots of incest. She was expected to bear sons who would legitimize the reign of her father's family, but she failed to produce a male heir. Such was the twist of fate that paved the way for her own scarcely believable rule. She ascended to the throne as a, quote, king, unquote, over a spectacular 22-year reign. Hatshepsut proved herself a master strategist, cloaking her political power plays with a veil of piety and sexual reinvention. You have Egypt, pharaohs, treachery, and the pursuit of power, all with the backdrop of sexual politics. Why hasn't this been made before? Usually, I would immediately think of Angelina Jolie for this role, and I would also like Guy Godot, but as she is an Israeli, well, you see the problem. At least, I think, but her successor thought most of the three destroyed most of her depictions, so we're not exactly certain what she looked like. But to be safe, we will feature Egyptian actresses such as Nellie Karim or Nadine Rizisk. Number two, The Hundred Days. After a nearly unending war that lasted 20 years, Napoleon is stripped of his powers and exiled to the island of Elba. But then all of Europe learns he has returned and his veterans have flocked to his standards. The 100 days is the period upon which Napoleon returned and up until the point where Wellington beat him at Waterloo. Key roles to be filled in include Wellington, Napoleon, and the Prussian general Blucher, but the story could center around Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigueux, or known to history simply as Talleyrand. After serving the Bourbon Napoleon and the Bourbon again, Talleyrand would be an ideal narrator who describes the happenings to the audience. I thought of Christoph Walls here as Talleyrand, Matt Smith as Wellington, and Vincent Cassel as Napoleon. Number three, Total War. The story of Prussia under Frederick the Great. Even before the French Revolution, Frederick showed what would happen when you ran a nation not as a personal fiefdom, which had been done really since the Middle Ages, but rather as an armed camp. Dennis Showalter, writing for History.net, states, quote, Ironically, the monarch who initially sought a state and an army in which charismatic leadership was superfluous ultimately became the center of the first modern cult of personality. To a degree, Old Fritz was the creation of his soldiers and subjects, a Teflon monarch to whom no criticism stuck because he was a projection of their own needs, desires, and myths. For good or ill, Frederick II of Prussia remains Frederick the Great, unquote. Domestically, Frederick's Enlightenment influence was more evident. He reformed the military and the government, established religious tolerance, and granted fundamental freedom of the press. 
He bolstered the legal system and found the first German code of law. Of all things, Frederick the Great, as he became to be known, left a legacy of devotion to Germany that set the example for leaders into the 20th century. Though this movie might seem a biopic, it would instead look at a nation converted from the medieval conventions of serving a hereditary master to the modern style of government and the mobilization of an entire population for war, a precursor to Napoleon and World War I. Michael Fassbender would be perfect for the part. And if he can go from Magneto to Steve Jobs, he can do this. And I thought of the aforementioned Christoph Waltz, but I'm beginning to believe there's only one role for him, the Christoph Waltz role. Other prominent roles would be Frederick's chief adversary, Maria Theresa, who had to contend with Frederick in the unprecedented nature of her being a Holy Roman Empress. Elizabeth of Russia also makes an appearance, and even Voltaire could appear at Frederick's court. Number four, the Admiral. The story of Horatio Nelson, the savior of Britain. 20 years ago, at the height of his box office powers, Russell Crowe made Master and Commander, a movie based on the popular Patrick O'Brien series. So you had a hot actor in a very popular series. Unfortunately, it didn't really do that well at the box office. So I get it. This is not everyone's cup of tea. But Nelson has so much more. Also known simply as Admiral Nelson, he was a British flag officer in the Royal Navy. His inspirational leadership, grasp of strategy, and unconventional tactics brought about several decisive British naval victories. He was wounded in combat, losing sight in one eye in Corsica at the age of 35, and most of one arm in the unsuccessful attempt to conquer Santa Cruz de Tenerife when he was 38. And then he was fatally shot in 1805, shortly before his victory at the Battle of Trafalgar, which is often regarded as Britain's most significant naval victory. Think about that. At the height of his most important victory, the one that would ensure British supremacy on the seas for 100 years, he is killed. That seat alone could be the climax of the movie. And unlike his on-land contemporary, the Duke of Wellington, he was not a sprig of the nobility, but a self-made man. He also had a tempestuous affair, so we can add a touch of Bridgerton to the script. Now, in 2005, there was a TV movie, but I couldn't even find a trailer on YouTube. I think Jude Law would be the best bet. Number five, The African King. Why is it that African history needs to focus only on colonialism? At one time, the most powerful man in the world, and perhaps the wealthiest man of all time, resided in sub-Saharan Africa. And his name was Mansa Musa. Now, I have talked about Musa before. And one of the reasons that this probably does not get greenlit, why this is not as popular as, let's say, let's make a, yet another movie about black oppression, is because the fact of the Ghanaian, Malian, which was Musa's empire, and Sangian empires puts paid to the concept that Africans at one point weren't at the top of the food chain, that they weren't running the most powerful empires in the world. This simply does not correlate well with the concept of an oppressed people. Therefore, this movie just doesn't seem to ever want to get made. Now, as Thad Morgan, writing for History.com notes, in the vast fictional universe of Marvel Comics, T'Challa, better known as Black Panther, is not only the king of Wakanda, he's also the wealthiest superhero of them all. And although today's fight for the title of the wealthiest person alive involves a tug-of-war between billionaire CEOs, the wealthiest person in history, Mansa Musa, 
has more in common with Marvel's first black superhero. Given that T'Challa had alien technology to carve out his kingdom, and a better exemplar might be Eddie Murphy as Prince, then King Akeem, of the fictional Zamunda, a kingdom so wealthy that it can afford to strew rose petals wherever the king chooses to stride. However much money Zamunda has, real-life Mali, under Mansa Musa, was richer. Musa became ruler of the Malian Empire in 1312, taking the throne after his predecessor, Abu Bakir II, who served as deputy when missing on a voyage he took by sea to find the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Musa's rule came when European nations were struggling due to raging civil wars and a lack of resources. During that period, the Malian Empire flourished thanks to ample natural resources like gold and salt. At one point, Musa travels to Mecca, for the Hajj, with a retinue of 12,000 people. This journey brings up a challenging issue, though. Musa owns slaves, thousands of them. But what is lost in much of progressive history is that from the tenure of Egypt to the 18th century, slavery, in one form or another, was the norm, not the exception. My pick for the role of Musa? British actor Chuitel Ejiofor. Number six, Revolution, the life of Toussaint Levature. Now, Levature is a combination of roots meets Spartacus, complete with the sad ending. As noted by Grunge, quote, Toussaint Levature is the most important leader you've never heard of. A former slave turned general, he freed Haiti from France in history's only successful slave revolt, which is interesting in and of itself, the only successful slave revolt. His life has been crying out for a movie for years. Louverture's story has to be told by Hollywood. That's a darn shame because Louverture's life already reads like a cross of 12 Years a Slave and Lawrence of Arabia. He was a slave born into the French colony of St. Dominique, now Haiti, and spent his first 50 years in shackles before joining the Haitian Revolution as a doctor. There, he rose the ranks until he controlled the largest army of ex-slaves on the island. After defeating the French in bloody combat, he tried to build a society in which whites, freed slaves, and mixed-race people could all live side by side, only to be betrayed by his own generals, unquote. Now, my research has shown that many people have tried to make a movie about this, including Hollywood actor Danny Glover, but for some reason, it just does not seem to get off the ground, and yet it should. If you made 12 Years a Slave, if you made a biopic about Nat Turner, if you made Spartacus, why not make this one? We were also thinking that Jimin Hanchu is an excellent lead for this film. Number seven, The Female Emperor. The story of Wu Zhishan, the only female to sit on the Chinese imperial throne. Now, Mike Dash, writing for the Smithsonian, notes, quote, Of all these female rulers, though none has aroused so much controversy or wielded such great power as a monarch whose real achievements and characters remain obscure behind layers of mystery. Her name was Wu Zexin, and in the 7th century CE, she became the only woman in more than 3,000 years of Chinese history to rule in her own right. Wu has every claim to be considered a great empress. In one guise or another, she held power for more than half a century. First, as a consort of the ineffectual Gazong Emperor, then as the power behind the throne held by her youngest son, and finally, 
from 690 CE until shortly before she died in 705 as monarch. Ruthless and decisive, she stabilized and consolidated the Tang dynasty at a time when it appeared to be crumbling. Unquote. Gong Li could play the emperor in her reigning years, and the younger version of Li played the emperor before her rise. Note I use the term masculine. That is because that is how Wu presented herself. Hollywood be, should be rushing to make this because it can film in China and it's about Chinese. Even though the Forbidden Palace as we see it today was not around in Tang times, the primary capital was not even Beijing, scenes can still be filmed there because, well, it's pretty cool, though historically inaccurate. The Great Wall, however, in some iteration was around. So again, another scene. Number eight, the battleship Yamato. Pearl Harbor, the beginning of the war in the Pacific, Midway, the turning point, and Flags of Our Fathers near the end have all been made into movies. But a symbolic end of Imperial Japan, the end of the battleship era, and the inception of dominance from the air, and finally even a mass harikari are all here in this one episode. Yamato was the lead ship of her class of battleships built for the Imperial Japanese Navy shortly before World War II. She and her sister ship, Musashi, were the heaviest and most powerfully armed battleships ever constructed, displacing 72,000 tons at full load and armed with nine 18-inch main guns, which were the largest guns ever mounted on a warship. On April 5th, 1945, the Yamato, in a hopeless and suicidal attempt to dislodge American landing forces at Okinawa, was sent to the bottom of the sea. During this encounter, entirely with American air power, the Yamato was hit by at least 11 torpedoes and 6 bombs, all launched by planes. When she sank, she took an estimated 3,055 of her 3,300 crew, including Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Seichi, to the bottom. This admiral, to whom the story can be centered, though American Admiral Raymond Sprouts, the most underrated American admiral in history, should also get screen time. Seichi Ito initially opposed the mission, which he viewed as futile and wasteful, but ultimately relented after being informed that the emperor himself was expecting the navy to mount some form of attack. The Japanese ships were spotted heading for Okinawa and were subsequently attacked by several hundred American carrier aircraft. With no Japanese air support available, the Yamato and several of its escorts were overwhelmed and sunk. After ordering the mission canceled and the remaining escorts to rescue survivors, Seichi Ito chose to go down with the Yamato. We were thinking the Japanese actor Ken Watanabe is the logical choice to play the Admiral, and Tom Hanks can play Spruance. Number 9. The Gifts of Abraham A biopic that centers on Abraham's departure from Mesopotamia. As noted in Genesis 12, quote, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sari, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they sent out for the land of Canaan. To your offspring I will give this land. Unquote. 
The story of Abraham is a very interesting one in that he is the progenitor of not one, not two, but all three of the major monotheistic religions of today. That would include Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Additionally, we would probably make him a little younger than 75. It is an off-choice pick, but I was actually thinking Jake Gyllenhaal to play Abraham. I know we would think of a Charlton Heston type actor, but keep in mind the boldness of Abram's action, and therefore an energetic actor would be best. In number 10, The Last Inca. This story would take place from the point of view of two key characters. The first would be Atahualpa, the last Incan to rule over a unified empire, and that of Francisco Pizarro, the Spaniard conquistador who conquered the Incan Empire. We would take this from the point of view of when Atahualpa defeats his brother in a bloody civil war to the time when he is taken prisoner by Pizarro out to his execution. This is a story that leads from hubris to fratricide to a fall and an execution. After fighting that bloody civil war against his brother, Atahualpa emerged as the sole leader of the Inca in 1532. But his reign was short-lived. While traveling to the Incan capital of Cusco to claim his throne, Atahualpa was seized by the town of Camarica by a small band of Spanish troops led by Francisco Pizarro. Legend has it that Atahualpa offered to fill a room with gold and silver in exchange for his release, but Pizarro had him executed in 1533. The Spanish gave Atahualpa a Christian burial in Camamarca, but numerous accounts suggest his body was exhumed by his followers and mummified. Peruvian actor Pietro Sibili can play Atahualpa, but I think Javier Bardem is a complete natural for the odious Francisco Pizarro. And that is my list of 10 movies that I think Hollywood should be thinking about and should be making. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast of The Conservative Historian. If you want to listen to other podcasts, check out our Buzzsprout site or our website at www.conservativehistorian.com. As always, thanks for listening.